You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For me, that's when I can connect my decisions with my values. So I am able to spend money on plane tickets, nice hotels, meals out, because that's what I've planned for. I've identified that they connect to some deeper values of community and beauty and generosity. So for me, it's not a deprivation in all categories. It's the choosing where I'm gonna say no so that I can say yes abundantly. Exciting career changes could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. Get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So I'm excited for today's episode because we are talking about all things friendship and money, which are two very complicated topics that get even more complicated when we put them together. Look, it is no secret that making friends and keeping them is a challenge for many, many people. And research shows that it has gotten harder over the decades. In 1990, 47% of adults said they had six or more close friends. In 2021, that number dropped to just 25%. Just 3% of people in 1990 said they had no close friends. But in 2021, that quadrupled to 12%, which I think is so sad. And part of that is no doubt because of the pandemic. We may be still feeling the effects of COVID on our friendships for years to come, but it's also more difficult in general to keep up with friendships as we get older, to put more time into our friendships as we have bigger careers, as we have important relationships, as we have children. One study by the Royal Society Journal found the average number of friends that people keep in touch with peaks around age 25 and declines all the way to retirement. As your work life and family life gets more complicated, so do your finances. And that can make it really hard to talk openly with your friends about how much you're earning, how much you can afford to spend on a night out. What do you do if your friends out-earn you and always want to dine at expensive restaurants? How do you talk through income differences and find ways to spend time together in ways that won't break the bank for anyone? And how do you make new friends who share your values around money and who will support you and cheer you on as you work to achieve your financial goals? Here to help me answer all of these questions and so many more, I've got two new friends, Jen Smith and Jill Siriani. They are longtime friends who spend a lot of time talking about money, actually. They are the co-hosts of the Frugal Friends podcast, which is a personal finance show that teaches people how to identify their values around money, control their spending, and live a fulfilling life without financial guilt. I will introduce them one at a time so you can hear their voices. Jen is the author of two books on personal finance, The No Spend Challenge Guide and Pay Off Your Debt 
for good. She successfully paid off $76,000 of her own debt in two years. We're going to talk more about that. But right now, let me say hi to you, Jen. Hey, Jean. Thanks so much for having us. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And we've also got Jill Siriani. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she identifies as a natural-born frugalista. Nice to have you here, Jill. Thanks for having me, Jean. How did you, Jill, come up with the idea of talking to people about personal finance? And you decided to name your show Frugal Friends. Jill, I know you claim to be a naturally frugal person, a natural frugalista. It's very hard to say. I don't know why. But I think frugal is kind of a loaded word, right? I mean, some people think of frugal as cheap. I know you don't see it that way. I don't actually see it that way. I think frugal is a good thing. But what does it mean to you? Frugal is being a good steward of all of our resources, meaning time, energy, money, anything that we've been entrusted to, stewarding that well has to do with mindfulness and intentionality of the decisions as we steward our resources. And I think this natural born element is really interesting. Do you think some people are born frugal and some people are not? And if you're not and you want to be more frugal, is this a learnable skill? Is this a habit that you can adopt? And how hard is it? That's about five (laughs) questions, but go at it. She's got it. (laughs) I think I caught them. This certainly is a nature versus nurture question. And coming from my own mental health, social work background, I would say both. I think there are people who have a propensity to be naturally more conservative with their resources or mindful about how they're engaging with the world and environment around them. There's others who are not so much. There's a spectrum, certainly. But yes, this can be learned. It does not mean, however, that it's going to look the same for every person. One of the things that we love to talk about is values-based spending, meaning that we each have the ability to identify what matters to us, what makes us tick, where do we want to be funneling and channeling our resources towards. And as long as we have the resources to do so, we're being mindful in it and we're seeking the benefit of ourselves and others in the process fantastic. And it will probably look very different from your other people who are aimed at frugality and being good stewards, but their values just may look different and how they allocate resources will most likely be different. Jen, what's the best way that you've found to do that? And we talk about that a lot on this show, spending your values and lining your time up with your values. How have you best found that people can take a step back and realign if they are out of focus. Yeah, it does come with an element of physically pausing or stepping back or we have such busy lives. Everything seems urgent. Everything seems important and like it needs to be solved right now. And usually that involves spending money. The quicker something need, a problem needs to be solved, the more likely you're going to spend money on it. And so A lot of the times we do need to step back and just give ourselves space to think about what do I value? So not necessarily what do my friends value? What does my family value? What does my work value? All those things are super important, but we need to take 
space to think about what are my core values? What am I looking to do and gain from life? So that when we are in these situations that could cause us to not be great stewards of our money or our time or our mental energy, that we can recognize that. We can recognize, okay, I'm not stewarding this well because this is what good stewardship looks like in my life. So I think we just don't give ourselves enough time to think about us, which kind of sounds weird because people are inherently kind of selfish, but I think we're very impacted by all these outside forces telling us like what to think and want and do, that we really need to just pause and think about, am I being told what I want or is this really what I want? Jill, you're nodding, and I'd love to draw on your social work background here. I do think there's a big element of FOMO. It's something we've been talking a lot about on the show recently, and a sense that there are a lot of shoulds out there. There are things you should want and you should do that may not be especially true to you. How do you figure out what your truth is? Mm. It's a process. And it is going to be certainly mostly about the journey, more so than the destination. But we love to talk about curiosity with self. So often when we reflect, if we do give ourselves space to reflect, it is full of the shame, the shoulds, the guilting. And what we really like to challenge people to do is be curious, push aside the shaming, the shooting on yourself, all of that, and just look at some of the, the actions, maybe the financial transactions, the ways in which you're relating to others, and be curious. What was it that came just before that spending behavior? What was my emotional state? How did that make me feel? Does it feel as though it's something that is actually important to me or not. And as we give ourselves even just seconds to press that pause button, reflect, some people will even carry around a little journal with them throughout the day to be able to be just a bit more mindful and curious with themselves, then that will build upon itself and lead to deeper understandings of what's important to me, what really filled my tank up, so to speak, my emotional relational tank. What was life-giving to me? What was depleting? That's not to say that we can avoid all things that deplete us, but keeping them in tension with one another and identifying in that regard what's actually valuable to me and finding ways to lean into that more, make space for that more. How can your friends help you see those things? Sometimes I think my friends see things in me before I see them in myself. I know my husband does this sometimes. He'll notice that I'm wound up about a particular issue before I've even tapped into that part of my emotional life. If you have close friends, how can they help you with this exercise? I think giving space for your friends to give that level of feedback is really important. Many times we might think something about our friends or have even an encouragement to share, but for some reason there can be barriers to saying, hey, I see room for a course correction, or here's something you did really well. 
I think just asking the people that you trust, there of course needs to be felt safety between you and whatever friend that you're asking and a level of assurity that you're going to get an honest answer from them or they're, you know, they're going to be kind with you. And that's part of the safety piece. But one of the questions I love to ask or tell others to ask friends, spouses, those that are in your close circle is how do you experience me? And that's their perspective, but that's also their understanding of the way that you're interacting with the world. Or what do you see is most important to me? What would you say is most valuable to me? These are all really helpful questions to approach our friends with. And maybe there'll be reciprocity. Maybe your friend will ask that of you too, and you'll get to give back in that way. I want to dig into how we can use our friendships to help promote financial accountability, but also how we can just get rid of some of the emotional baggage surrounding money that often lives and torments our friendships. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that whether you're up with the sun or burning the midnight oil, we know how hard you are working to excel in your career. It takes grit and determination. And by the way, it took a lot of skill to get where you are today. But what if things start to change. Maybe you want to open a business, go for a big promotion, move for your dream job. How does that affect the rest of your financial life? Visit planefv.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today with an integrated approach to financial planning and wealth management. You'll get the expertise you need to help build momentum with your finances and your career. I'm talking with Jen Smith and Jill Siriani. They are the co-hosts of the Frugal Friends podcasts. A lot of us have trouble talking about money with friends. We don't have trouble talking about shopping, for example. You know, I'm always eager to give it up when I get a good deal or to let my friends know that there's some amazing sale coming. But when it comes to the more emotionally laden facets of money, how I feel that I didn't get a bonus, how I feel that my husband wants to merge all of our accounts when really I'd like to have some of my own money. Those conversations are much harder to have. So how do we start breaking down those walls? Jill, you mentioned it was very easy for you and Jen to start talking about money because you were both living incredibly frugally at that point. What would you suggest for other women who really want to open the doors to these sorts of not frivolous conversations? I think there's a couple of different avenues we could explore. One would be who's already within your circle, kind of your inside the fence. I like to call them garden friends. They're inside the boundary lines of of your home, of your safe space. Do you have any of these friends where the boundaries aren't as strict or stringent, where there are feelings of safety there? And just begin asking some of those questions. But I think vulnerability leads to vulnerability. I think we have to go there first. And so if we want that reciprocated with our relationships and friendships with our garden friends, 
then we have to offer that up first. And safety bit by bit. I'm not saying spill the whole thing, but share a little bit. See how your friend responds. If if it's going well, great. Maybe next time there's a little bit more that you can share. Are they reciprocating some of that vulnerability? What kind of feedback are you seeking from your friend? Maybe come with something you want to share with them and, and a question or, or feedback that you would want to receive from them. If that's not present, or maybe even addition to that, one of the benefits of the internet and communities online, there's plenty of non-beneficial things to the internet, but finding communities maybe with people that aren't even in your neighborhood or close community, if you're not finding it within your sphere of 10 miles, What about people across the nation? There are plenty of opportunities to connect with like-minded people, share stories online. And I know many, even like our membership group, you can chat with one another. You could get on video calls once there's some of that established safety. So whether it's already in your network or you're starting to look for it, it's not going to take that much work to find it if you know what you want. Jen, you're nodding along. Have you found it easy to make other frugal friends in your own life? I would not say it's easy, but it is definitely worth it. So when my husband and I were paying off our debt, I did find a lot of my friends really were not ready to be at the same place that I was. And so that meant... And when you say ready to be at the same place that you were, do you mean making a commitment to really throwing your money against your debt and not doing as many other things because you were trying to get your life in a better place? Yeah. So they wanted to go to the happy hours and out to dinner and to the clubs more than they actually wanted to hang out with me. Like it was their goal to go out, not necessarily, they didn't care who they went out with. And so that was a weird realization for me to think, okay, I have to find friends who really want to hang out with me and spend time with me versus an activity. And there was no like maliciousness. These were not bad people. But I just had to find friends that were, kind of at the same place as me. And so it involved just a lot of asking, like figuring out the activities that were in my budget and asking people if they wanted to come along. And sometimes that budget was just a bottle of wine from Aldi at home. But I was able to strengthen relationships that I had that were pretty superficial that I would not have if I hadn't been on this journey. And so it wasn't easy to see my old friends kind of doing all the things that I had wanted to do, you know, like buying new cars and buying houses and doing all these things that were on the list, just not the priority. But it also felt really good to kind of get to know people better that I wouldn't have otherwise, who are still my really close friends today, Jill included in that. There was an early episode of Friends. I'm sure you guys have perhaps talked about this one where Ross and Chandler and Monica were earning more money than Joey and Phoebe and Rachel. 
that was the breakdown. I should be better with my friends trivia considering how many times I have watched every single episode. <laughs> but, you know, it was a point of contention. The three went off to a Hootie and the Blowfish concert and three did not. And they solved it, of course, within the course of a 30-minute episode, a 22-minute episode, and then we never heard about it again. And in real life, it doesn't work that way. So what do you do if you have a friend who earns more than you do and tries to encourage you to do expensive things? Or to bring this into an even bigger real-life problem, what do you do if you have a friend who is a bride who is asking you to be in a wedding that is far more money than you can afford to spend right now? Jill. Oh, we are only responsible and in control of ourselves. And absolutely, we will butt up against all sorts of difficulties just when it comes to relationships with people. That does not mean that we can't have friendships with people from all different walks of life. It will just be navigating that step-by-step and owning our own decisions and how we're choosing to spend our money. If it's not in our budget to go to a happy hour every night of the week, but it isn't a friend's budget, okay. I mean, really, we might need to reflect inwardly to say, am I just upset with them and jealous of them that they get to go? What is my decision allowing me to do? What can I comfortably do with the money that I'm making? Or is it really challenging me to think, do I want to expand my career? There's so many different directions that we could take that. All of it is fruitful, though. The intersection of our lives with the lives of people who differ from us will only, if we choose to, allow it to grow us personally, professionally, financially, and to be confident in the decisions that we make as a result of that. Of course, when it comes to the friends where there's these obligatory expenses, or at least that feel obligatory, this is where our own understanding of self, that previous curiosity work that we've done is going to come in handy to know what we can afford, how we reasonably want to be managing and stewarding our resources, and then boundaries. That comes with a lot of confidence and a lot of practice. That is not something we can just easily step into. But one of the key things to keep in mind when it comes to other people anticipating or expecting us to spend a certain amount is as much as we can set expectations early on, the better. This would be group trips with friends. This is the friends who are brides. Hopefully that didn't catch you by surprise. Hopefully you saw that coming a little bit. If you're that close of friends with somebody that they're inviting you to be in their wedding and being able to communicate what you will be able to do, what you won't be able to do and deciding for yourself. That of course is going to have to be our own ability to let go of some of that guilt and shame to verbalize what's happening for us. Sometimes that goes better than other times. There's landmines all over this thing, but communication boundaries, speaking out your own expectations and then owning your decisions. Flip the script for me now. You're the person who makes more money, and you are conscious that you've got friends who are making less. What do you say? How do you navigate respecting their boundaries while still doing the things that you want to enjoy? I think that comes down to keeping our lifestyle inflation in check and knowing that just because you find what you value spending money on doesn't mean you can afford to meet that value at every point in your life. And so if your friends are 
not in the point where they can meet their values in the way that you can to respect that and to meet them where they are because they can't meet you where you are. So I think that when we are cognitive enough of saying, okay, I may be able to go on these trips and be the bridesmaid in every wedding, but not everybody can and that's okay. Or not everybody wants to. Even if they can't afford it, that's also a choice. If it doesn't align with their values, they may not want to. And just respecting other people's place, season, decisions, and we are only in control of what we do, not what other people do. As we wrap this up, let's just agree that frugal is a good thing. But let's also maybe agree that there could be too much of a good thing. How do you, if you find yourself in one of these periods of a lot of frugality, or if you think that this is just baked into your personality and you feel like you need to let go a little bit, how do you get yourself to do that? For me, that's when I can connect my decisions with my values. So I am able to spend money on plane tickets, nice hotels, meals out, because that's what I've planned for. I've identified that they connect to some deeper values of community and beauty and generosity. And so there's room for it. And I've learned how to make room for it by then saying no to the things that do not actually matter. So for me, it's not a deprivation in all categories. It's the choosing where I'm going to say no so that I can say yes abundantly in some of these other areas and feel really confident about those decisions. And yet that's going to be different for other people. Jen does not want to travel as much as I do. She does not want to be caught in some country and missing a ride to somewhere and the hotel's not what she thought because that does happen. (laughs) Her values are different. But I give myself space to spend in the areas that are really important to me. How can our listeners tune in to more of you? Where can they find your Frugal Friends podcast, your community? Yeah. So we are, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find us, Frugal Friends Podcast. We do two episodes a week. And we also have a series of debt-free stories on YouTube. Just search Frugal Friends over there, where we interview our listeners who've paid off debt and kind of get their insight, their inspirational and motivational stories. And then our community is on our website, frugalfriendspodcast.com. Amazing. Thank you both for doing this today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Jean. Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn a lot of ways to secure your financial future. We are back on Her Money. Catherine Tuggle is joining me. I feel like you're my frugal friend. Thank you so much. That is so flattering. You have a lot of hacks. I feel like it has a lot to do with how you're raised. And I was raised by a very frugal Southern family. We grew our own food. We thrift store shopped. So to me, it seems second nature. And I also feel like you get this muscle memory as like a young, poor person. Like I always look at people, you know, buying like the Hermes bags and the crazy multi-million dollar everything And I wonder if they have forgotten what it was like to be poor. 
because I don't think I will ever forget that muscle memory. I don't think I will ever forget what it was like to support me and my husband on a $47,000 salary in New York City. Yep. Like for years we did that. And, you know, anytime I go out to eat now, I feel like it's a luxury. And I don't think there is any amount of money I could earn that would make me forget all that. I don't think so either. I mean, I remember being young in New York, working a second job because the first job was not enough, and eating Chinese soup with rice many days of the week for dinner because you could get hot and sour soup and rice for a dollar. Yeah. And I liked it better than the slice of pizza that you could get for the dollar. We definitely do our fair share of eating out, but I have that reaction when I look at certain price tags or things in a restaurant and I just think I can't spend that on that. Yeah. Or I could, but I won't because it doesn't make sense to me. I think that's mm-hmm. where it the line is. And there are certain things that do make sense to me, right? I will spend money to buy a pound of fish, fresh fish, at the fishmonger that I know is really good. And then I'll cook it and I will be happy doing that. I'll spend money on a bottle of good vanilla and cook with that. But there are other things that it's just like, you want to charge me $18 for a glass of wine that you're not even going to fill halfway up? No, thank you. Yeah. For me, it is hotels, always hotels. Like, because if I'm traveling, I'm not going to be in the room. I don't want to be the person who is in the room. So I always look for the cheapest, safest, cleanest hotel. And, you know, in New York, you can easily spend eight grand a night on a hotel room. And to me, that yeah. that is just insanity. And yet there are people I know who are your exact opposite. So I do another (laughs) podcast called Everyday Wealth that is produced by a lovely woman named Shelly Connolly. And her happy place is in a luxurious hotel room. And that's where she chooses to spend money. She wants a heavenly bed and really nice sheet count. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I get it. I get it. Well, we, my husband and I, we did our honeymoon in Italy and we stayed in a hostel. I mean, this is years ago now, but we wanted to get to Italy and we budgeted in a way that would get us there. And I remember the proprietor of the hostel, we told her we were on our honeymoon and she was aghast. She looked at us and she was like, this is a very humble honeymoon. (laughs) And we just looked at her and we said, yes, it is. And we're fine with that. But when I was listening to these ladies talk, I was thinking about that pushback that you do get when you are on a different budget from other people. And sometimes that pushback doesn't come from friends. Sometimes it comes from the woman in the hostel, who you're paying to stay with, by the way. So, like, don't be throwing off on my honeymoon because I'm giving you money to stay here. But, you know, you're going to meet resistance with your spending style from everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's better not to talk about it, I guess. Not to not talk about the things that might help you along the way, but if you know you're going to get that kind of pushback and if you are spending money on something purely because it makes you happy, then maybe you just internalize that and don't share that particular happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like the latte. If the latte is what makes you happy, have the latte. Right. Exactly. We've got some questions. I know we've got some important ones, so let's dig in. Yes. Our first question today comes to us from Tracy. She writes, Hello, Jean and Catherine. Thank you for your incredibly informative podcast. 
I listen to it every day on my commute to and from work, and I wanted to ask a couple of questions on investing. My brother recently got a new job with a much higher salary that disqualifies him from continuing to invest in his Roth IRA. I read about the backdoor Roth strategy, and I wonder if that's something he might contemplate. When does it make sense for someone to go the route of the backdoor Roth, and when does it make sense for someone to just keep their traditional IRA without converting it? The second question I wanted to ask is on tax loss harvesting. I have a few investments that I have lost a significant amount of money on to the tune of over $11,000 since 2007, and I think it might finally be time to sell. How does tax loss harvesting work? Can I still take advantage of the tax deductions if I take the standard deduction? Thank you both so much. Both really good questions, Tracy. How nice of you to actually write us to ask a question for your brother. Let me just take them one by one for you. So a backdoor Roth is essentially where you make a contribution to a taxable IRA. You don't take the tax deduction and then you immediately convert it to a Roth. And I think it may very well make sense for somebody like your brother. It makes sense to me to pay the taxes now rather than waiting to pay them down the road, which is what you're doing when you go for a Roth IRA over a traditional deductible IRA, when you can afford to do that. Why not pay the taxes on this investment now and also get the other benefits of a Roth, like the fact that there will never be any required minimum distributions and that you can get at the money if you need it for things like education or to buy a first house or that you can pass the entire account on to your heirs if you want tax-free. So if he can afford to do so, I think it might make sense for him to look at this. The other thing I do want to just point out here is that it is nice in retirement to have some tax diversification among your pots of money. So it would be nice if somewhere along the way he was making 401k contributions that were pre-tax or had other pots of money that were pre-tax to just balance him out a little bit. On the tax loss harvesting, you asked if you can still take advantage of tax loss harvesting if you take the standard deduction. The answer is yes, they don't have anything to do with each other. And the way tax loss harvesting works is that within a single tax year, calendar year, you have the ability to write off losses against gains plus against up to $3,000 of ordinary income. So you said you've got $11,000 in losses. If you also had $11,000 in gains, stocks or other investments that you had made your money on, that you sold, you could sell the losing investments and they would just completely wash each other out. If you only had $8,000, in gains. You could use the additional 3000 left over against ordinary income. So it would reduce the ordinary income that you were taxed on, which is like reducing the pie. It's not the same as a credit or a deduction. And if you were unable 
to use those tax losses against gains or ordinary income in that calendar year, then you could just roll it over into subsequent years. I think you want to look at the investment, not necessarily just from a tax perspective, but from the perspective of the fundamentals of that investment itself. And if you're wondering about how do I analyze an investment on the fundamentals, then I would urge you to check out our investing fix class. That's what we're doing. Karen Feinerman from CNBC and I are teaching investing and we're teaching how to do fundamental investment analysis, how to look at stocks, how to look at mutual funds, how to pick things that will do well. And I have to say, we had class last night. Our portfolio is doing really well. And I can't take credit for that because we are teeing up investments, but the participants in our Investing Fix class program, they're voting on which ones are getting added to the portfolio. So they're making some really good decisions. And I know some of them have told me they are also buying these investments for their own accounts. So they are also making some money, which I feel pretty good about as well. Yeah, I have to say, I think I've told you this before, I've learned more from reading the Investing Fix newsletter and coming to the classes than I think I ever did in like years of markets reporting. It's so well distilled and so well explained. And it's fun. We have fun. One of the participants, a woman named Jennifer, who lives actually across the world, she lives in Switzerland, she presented an investment for the group last night. And this is something that we encourage. Karen will do some training with any of the members who want to present investments. And she was so good. She was just so polished and so well thought out in her analysis. I was really excited. I think the group is going to pick the one that she presented because they want to support her, you know, just in general. That's amazing. I love it. Our next question today comes to us from Rita. She writes, Hi, Jean. Do you have any advice for people who are new to the concept of needing to draw down on their money in retirement? I've always done my own finances. However, looking at my RMDs, which will be coming up for me in about four to six years, I have to say I'm confused. Do you hire a financial advisor to help you with this or maybe an accountant? How much will that cost? Thank you so much. Rita, RMDs are confusing, and the rules on RMDs are changing as we speak, thanks to the changes that came down the pike in Secure 2.0, which is the new law affecting taxes and retirement. And so, yeah, I actually think now would be a terrific time for you to sit down with a financial advisor. You don't have to have a financial advisor on point for the rest of your life. You can have a couple of meetings with an advisor that you pay by the hour to help you make a plan, or you can hire a financial advisor to manage your pot of money and help you on an ongoing basis. And that generally costs somewhere around one-ish percent of whatever assets you have. It may be a little more. If you don't have a lot of assets, it could be a little less if you have significant assets. But you want to do this before these come your way because there is some flexibility. You can start taking distributions out of your retirement accounts before you 
have to start taking distributions, the required ones, out of your retirement accounts. And so you want to look at which pools of money you're going to be pulling from, when, which assets you're selling in order to make those distributions, and how all of those things play into where you are getting your sources, your ongoing sources of financial support, the money to live on. Could an accountant do this? Some accountants potentially could do this, but I think a financial advisor is going to be the way to go. And if you need a place to start, you can sit down for a free consultation with our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. I actually think talking to several financial advisors is a really good thing to do. So I would start there and see how it goes. Please let me know. And thanks for writing. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you, Jean. And in today's Thrive, we're taking a note from Jen and Jill and celebrating frugal living. Specifically, we are going to talk about how to get rid of all the stuff in your house you do not need and profit by selling it online. Spring cleaning, it's just around the corner, so it is the perfect time to take stock of everything that has been collecting dust over the past year. Gently used clothes, collectibles, furniture, they are all great items to sell on secondhand websites. And you can earn even more if you're tactical about when, where, and how you market them. At Her Money, we've got a list of the tried and true strategies for how to help you get the best offers on your item. But here are a few tips. First, do your research on the best websites for each type of item you have. Facebook Marketplace can be a great place to sell furniture to people who live nearby and can pick your stuff up. You can also list clothes there, but if you have high quality or professional clothes that you want to sell, you may get a better price if you try websites like ThreadUp or Poshmark. Next, make your items look picture perfect. That means iron your clothes. Wipe down things like chairs and tables. Put back together anything that's been taken apart. Place your items in a well-lit space. Remove any clutter in the background and take multiple photos at different angles. Once you've got the visuals down, make sure you're honest in your item descriptions. Include the age of the item, the brand, the measurements, scratches, tears, and whether or not it's from a smoke or pet-free home. When you're ready to post, double check that you're selling your things for a fair price. Look at the prices that other sellers are charging for similar items and think about your goals. Would you rather price it on the cheap to sell fast or are you willing to wait a bit to get a better deal? When the messages from potential buyers start coming in, respond quickly and beware of scammers. If anybody anybody asks for your bank account number or they want to pay with a cashier's check or money order, they are probably trying to swindle you. Feel free to cancel a sale even if you are a little suspicious. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jen Smith and Jill Siriani for showing us how we can make our friendships stronger by being more open and honest about money. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.